This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. You know, with our population, there's not many people who get to meet the President of the United States, or to be honored by the President of the United States. 319 million people, so you can calculate the odds. And in fact, this will be an exercise that we're going to collect at the end of the dinner. There'll be a prize for the person who gets the statistical analysis correct. Steve will be the judge, since he teaches statistics. Um, So it's unusual. Uh, But this summer, this last summer, we had two people at the Goldman School who hit the statistical jackpot and made it to the White House uh, first, Dean Sudeshetti, through her work on the Young African Leaders Program, ended up in the White House. And I had predicted that if Suda got within 20 feet of the president, she would end up having a picture taken of her and the president. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. So that was step one in our, getting, our mole getting into the White House. Um, so that was exciting. But just a while later... Our speaker tonight, Saru Jayaraman, was in Washington to receive President Obama's award for Champion of Change Award uh, for her work on trying to raise the minimum wage for food service and other workers. Uh, What an incredible honor, what an incredible thing for her to be in the White House getting this award. You'll see why in just a few moments when she comes up and speaks on this topic. Uh, She's a director of the UC Berkeley Food Labor Research Center. Uh, She's also co-founder and co-director of the Restaurant Opportunities Centers United. That's an organization that's committed to raising restaurant industry standards and to improving working conditions and pay for the nation's restaurant workforce. And I'm also proud to say that she's a lecturer Uh, at the Goldman School of Public Policy, where she inspires students through her course on food policy. So, Saru Jairan, please come up and tell us about the wonderful things you've been doing. Great to have you here. Thanks. Thank you, Dean Brady. Um, I really want to thank Dean Brady for bringing me into the Goldman School. I have to say, I went to Harvard, to the Kennedy School of Government, and um, yeah, I know. And I do, I do, I do want to say that we just were never exposed to the amazing things that uh, the Goldman School. You know, somebody like me, for example, would never have been teaching uh, when I was at the Kennedy School. Most of the folks we were learning from were not in the real world, exposed to the real world. And that's what's so extraordinary to me about what Dean Brady has pulled together and all of you have pulled together at the Goldman School because I know, like Alex, as a student, uh, what I learned the most from was not necessarily the things that were in the classroom, but everything that I was doing while in the Kennedy School outside of the classroom. I learned so much from that experience. And so I'm very grateful to Dean Brady and to the Goldman School for having me here, you know, I, I was in New York until two years ago and came to Berkeley with a mission, which was that, you know, Berkeley is the home to the food movement in the United States. Alice Waters is here. So much of what people are thinking about these days in terms of sustainability in food originated here in the Bay Area. Uh, and I came trying to 
with a question, right? The question was, could you expand that definition of sustainable food to include the workers in the food system? And what is the intersection between the idea of sustainable food and the idea of sustainable working conditions for the 20 million workers in the food system? And that's actually how many workers there are in the U.S. food system, 20 million workers. It is actually, as a system, the single largest employer in the United States. One in five private sector workers works in some aspect of the food system. One in six workers in the entire United States works in food. And yet it happens to be the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States, which makes the food system in the United States not a bad employer, but the absolute worst employer in the United States is the very food that we eat. Well, me, myself, I knew none of this, none, none of it at all, about 12 years ago. I had just graduated from law school. I was living in New York City. I was working as an attorney and uh, with immigrants out in Long Island, New York, uh, when 9-11 happened. And on September 11th, there was a restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center Tower 1 called Windows on the World. Some of you may remember it. It was on the 107th floor of Tower 1. It was above the clouds and above where the plane hit that morning. And so on that morning, 73 workers died. They either jumped to their deaths from the 107th floor or they were evaporated, literally incinerated within minutes because the heat rose so quickly from the plane that the workers who were setting up for the day's meal in the restaurant were very quickly evaporated. And I was called by the union that was inside that restaurant, a very small union, because less than 0.001% of all restaurant workers in the United States are unionized. They called me and called one of the head waiters from Windows on the World and asked if we would start a little relief center in the aftermath of the tragedy. We started a little relief center, and we called it Rock, the Restaurant Opportunity Center. And what started as a little relief center post-9-11 has grown into a national restaurant workers organization. We now have 13,000 members in 32 cities across the country, 100 employer members, restaurant owners ranging from Tom Colicchio, star of Top Chef, a fabulous employer and a great partner of ours, all the way down to small mom-and-pop restaurants around the country, including right here in Berkeley, and several thousand consumer members. And the reason why we've grown so rapidly over the last 12 years since that fateful day, since 9-11, is the explosion in this industry. The restaurant industry, actually, I told you, you know, 20 million workers in the entire food system, more than half of those workers, almost 11 million workers at this point, work in the U.S. restaurant industry. The workers who cook, prepare, and serve our food in restaurants together make up the second largest private sector employer in the United States. You know, it's, it's really interesting whenever I talk, because even I am astounded by the statistics every time I say it. But, you know, we as Americans, we eat out statistically more than anybody else on earth. And it isn't just the frequency with which we eat out. It's the fact that we tend to celebrate the most amazing lives moments of our lives in restaurants, right? Weddings, anniversaries, birthdays, uh, special meetings, right? Special gatherings. We celebrate American culture in restaurants more than any other nation on earth. And yet most of us have absolutely no idea what is happening to the people who touch our food, prepare it, let alone serve it, right? 
So as a result of our extraordinary appetite for eating out, even when we've been unemployed, this is the only industry that has grown over the last couple of years of economic crisis rather than declined. So our enormous appetite for eating out as a nation has resulted in this industry being the second largest and absolute fastest growing sector of the U.S. economy. And yet, despite all of that, it happens to be the lowest of the low. I told you the food system is the lowest paying employer in the United States. And within the food system, believe it or not, the restaurant industry is the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States. So every year, the U.S. Department of Labor puts out a list of the 10 lowest paying jobs in America. And every year, we win the award. Seven of the 10 lowest paying jobs in America and the two absolute lowest paying jobs in America are restaurant jobs. And only one of those seven occupations, surprise, surprise, is a fast food occupation. Six of the seven lowest paying occupations in the United States that are all restaurant jobs are not fast food. So how is it that you've got the second largest and absolute fastest growing sector of the U.S. economy proliferating the absolute lowest paying jobs in America, a multi-billion dollar industry doing quite well, growing, succeeding even during economic crisis. How is it that they provide the lowest paying jobs in America? Our research shows that it's entirely due to the power and influence of a trade lobby called the National Restaurant Association which we call the other NRA because it is a trade lobby that ranks often as high as the NRA that you have heard about, the Rifle Association. Uh, in, you know, Fortune, every year, Fortune magazine puts out a list of the top 25. They call them the Power 25, the 25 most powerful trade lobbies in the United States. And every year, the Restaurant Association is right up, there, right up there with the Rifle Association in being one of the most powerful trade lobbies on Capitol Hill and in every state legislature. Well, back in 1996, the other NRA, as we call it, was led by a man named Herman Cain. <laughs> Do you remember Herman Cain? <laughs> so uh, Herman Cain, some people know him, he led a company called Godfather's Pizza. And later in life, he tried to run for uh, president on the Republican ticket. Uh, and he lost. <laughs> he couldn't make it. He dropped out because of a scandal. You may recall some women appeared and said that he had sexually harassed them while head of the National Restaurant Association. And we like to say Herman Cain harassed women in more ways than one, because as the president of the National Restaurant Association, before he ran for president, Herman Cain struck a deal with Congress, saying that they, the other, national, the other NRA, would not oppose a very modest increase in the overall minimum wage as long as the minimum wage for workers who earned tips stayed frozen forever. And so the federal minimum wage for tipped workers has been frozen at $2.13 an hour for the last 23 years. And it's between $2.13 and $5 in 43 states in the United States. Now, California is one of seven states that has had the same wage for tipped and non-tipped workers for decades. But in 43 states in the United States, including our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., where the wage is $2.77 an hour, in 43 states in the United States, the wage is between $2.13 and $5 an hour which means that the Restaurant Association has gotten away with this extraordinary argument 
to Congress and to state legislatures all over the country, and frankly to the American people, that they should be the only industry on earth, because this is the only nation in which this significant difference exists. They should be the only industry on earth that shouldn't have to pay their own workers' wages because you, the customers, should pay their workers' wages for them, which is essentially the justification. We should not have to pay our workers' wages because the customers should be forced to pay our workers' wages in tips. And how have they gotten away with this extraordinary argument, with this extraordinary exemption? They've gotten away with it by painting the picture of a white man who works at a fancy fine dining restaurant here in Berkeley or in San Francisco. Their favorite number is he earns $18 an hour in tips or $100,000 a year. He's doing quite well. You know, a couple months ago, I was called by the Senate Budget Office, and they said, Saru, you know, we just, you know, the NRA and all these big companies from the Restaurant Association just walked into our office, and they said that their workers earn $18 an hour on average in tips. And we said, okay, great, show us some proof. And they said a week later, the NRA had sent them a piece of paper on NRA letterhead that said, our workers earn $18 an hour in tips. And they've gotten away with this form of advocacy of data and statistics for more than two decades. When you look at government data, as I told the Senate Budget Office and sent them government data after that, you'll find that the median wage for workers who earn tips in this country is $8 an hour, including tips. You'll find that 70% of tipped workers in America are women, women who work at the IHOP and the Applebee's and the Olive Garden and Red Lobster, women who suffer from three times the poverty rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce and use food stamps at double the rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce, which means the women who put food on our tables in America cannot actually afford to put food on their own families' tables. So until a couple of years ago, or actually at this point about a year ago, uh, our advocacy, our research, everything that we were about, everything that I was producing in terms of books and research was all about raising the minimum wage and raising that wage for tipped workers. And we thought we were so extraordinary when we got Congresswoman Donna Edwards to introduce a bill in Congress in the House that would raise the wage to $10.10 and raise the wage for tipped workers to 70% of that. We were patting ourselves on the back. We thought we were extraordinary because that would mean a tripling in wages for the 6 million women in America that rely on a tipped minimum wage of $2.13 an hour. We thought we were going places. And then this year, Senator Harkin in the Senate and George Miller in the House introduced the Minimum Wage Fairness Act and took our proposal and Donna Edwards' proposal, and it proposed, again, raising the minimum wage to 10-10 and 70% for tipped workers. And again, we were patting ourselves on the back. Oh, my gosh, this is actually going to move. We've got a bill in Congress. We thought we were so great. And then three things happened. Three things happened to show us that we were dead wrong. First... We did a ton of research on the seven states that have had the same wage for tipped and non-tipped workers for decades. That's California, Oregon, Washington, Minnesota, Montana, Alaska, and Nevada have had the same wage for tipped and non-tipped workers for decades. We found that these seven states were faring better on every measure than the 43 states with lower wages for tipped workers. Higher restaurant sales per capita, higher job growth in the restaurant industry, even higher job growth among servers in these seven states. 
And it's funny, you know, I always get the question, what about tipping? Is tipping lower in the seven states? Because the Restaurant Association likes to argue that if the wage were to be the same, if they were have to pay their own workers instead of the workers relying on tips, tips would end as we know it. Well, do you all tip? <laughs> we found that the seven states have higher tipping averages than the 43 states with lower wages for tipped workers. In fact, Alaska has the highest tipping rate of any state in the United States, and it's had the same wage for tipped and non-tipped workers for decades. So if the data is showing that these seven states are faring better on every measure, then why are we fighting for 70%? We should be fighting for every state to follow the example of California. That was the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened was that Nancy Pelosi came out with her women's equity agenda and went around the country talking about gender equity, talking about paycheck fairness, and asked me and some of our members from my organization to join her on stage in town hall meetings across the country. And Nancy Pelosi would get up there and say, we need to end the fact that women earn 73 cents on the man's dollar. And I would get up there and say, and we need to legislate so that women earn 70% of the overall minimum wage. <laughs> It made absolutely no sense. But the third and most heartbreaking thing that occurred, that changed all of our minds, culminated in a report that we released last week that was featured in the New York Times and in CNN and on USA Today. It was on Democracy Now! last week talking about it. And that is the issue of sexual harassment. So I like to tell the story of one worker that's featured in my book. Her name is Nikki Lewis. Uh, Nikki was a young woman who graduated with honors from the University of Maryland, um, did really well, and decided that she wanted to go into a career in hospitality. She took great pride in hospitality and food service, as millions of workers do. This is not a throwaway job for millions of workers. This is actually a career, something people take pride in. Nikki was one of those workers found a job at a very fancy fine dining restaurant in our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., earning a wage of $2.77 an hour, serving senators and congresspeople, trying to do her best as a new young worker in the restaurant, but finding that when you earn a wage of $2.77 an hour, you receive a pay stub that says this is not a paycheck. It says zero because your wages are so low they go entirely to taxes and you live completely off your tips. And when you live completely off your tips, you have no idea how much your income is going to be from day to day, week to week, month to month. Your rent and your bills do not go up and down, but your income does. And as a result, Nikki was not able to know how much she'd earn and ended up being evicted after not being able to pay her rent. Ended up living on a friend's couch, honors graduate from the University of Maryland, trying to make a career in food service, living on a friend's couch. But even worse, even worse, as a young woman living off tips, as so many millions of American women do, Nikki was forced to tolerate whatever the customer might do to her, however they may touch her or treat her or talk to her, because the customer was always right. Because the customer paid her bills, not her manager. And even worse, the manager would encourage Nikki, show more cleavage, dress more sexy, wear a tighter top, so that you can get more income and tips, so that you can sell more food, And having to objectify oneself in that way as a young woman made Nikki vulnerable, not only to harassment from customers, but also from coworkers and management. 
such that every day the maitre d' would take Nikki into the coffee station and stick his hand down her pants, and Nikki felt that she had to tolerate tolerate it, such that at one point Nikki was taken to a co-worker's apartment and raped. And I wish I could say this was the only time I've heard this story, but I cannot tell you the number of times I've spoken at audiences like this and a woman will come up to me at the end of the talk and say, I worked in the industry, I was harassed, I was raped. So much so that we decided to study the issue. So over the last year, we worked with a number of partners, including the National Women's Law Center, the National Organization for Women. We conducted 700 surveys of women across the country, restaurant workers. We found that 90%, 90% of women in this industry reported experiencing sexual behaviors in the industry that made them afraid or uncomfortable on the job. We also found that women in states that pay as little as $2.13 an hour experience twice the rate of sexual harassment as women in states like California where the wage is the same for tipped and non-tipped workers. We found that women in states that pay as little as $2.13 an hour were told at three times the rate as women in states like California by management dress more sexy, show more cleavage to get more money in tips. All of this data was completely buttressed by the number of women who wrote in from all over the country and told us horror stories. Everything from uh, a young woman who, uh, uh, Steve here, Steve and I went to meet um, Senator Gillibrand a few months ago, and she said, oh, I remember one of your members. She spoke at a Senate press conference. She said, Senators, what would it be like for you if your income depended on the happiness of the people you serve? (laughs) She said, Senators, because my income depends on the happiness of the people I serve, I have to put up with a man groping my butt every day to feed my four-year-old son at night. And that reality was true in our research, not only for the six million women who must tolerate this for their entire lives to feed their families, but for millions more young women in the United States for whom this is their first job in high school, college, or graduate school. And this is the part that is terrifying. Because for most young women in America, this is the first job, our daughters, this is the first job they will have in high school, college, or graduate school. This is statistically the first job for most young people in America. This is how young women in America are exposed to the world of work, a world in in which they can be touched and treated and talked to in any which way, a world that teaches them what is acceptable and tolerable and legal in the workplace, whether it is legal or not. Because the interesting thing about our research is that when we asked women, have you been sexually harassed, a legal term, on the job, one in five said yes. When we asked women, have you experienced sexual behaviors in the restaurant that make you afraid or uncomfortable, 90% said yes. So we are training women in what is acceptable, tolerable, and legal through an industry that not only, it's not only accepting of this behavior, it is encouraging of this behavior. Because the research showed that three times the rate in these states, management was actually encouraging women to objectify themselves. Fortunately, there is tremendous change on the way. 
I'm partly here today talking to you because this has become a topic of the moment, right? This is now the conversation of the day. Economic inequality, the minimum wage, is moving in at least 40 cities and states in the United States at this moment. It will be on the ballot in so, so many more states than I can count on my fingers this year. And many more states are moving next year. And the extraordinary thing, the extraordinary thing is that last year in his State of the Union address, President Obama put out the number nine. $9 an hour. And I was in the White House shortly after he put out that number with a group of advocates who were so mad at the National Economic Council for putting out that number nine. But that's where we were at as a nation, $9 an hour. And even that was considered scary. And where are we today? We're talking about $15 an hour, which is closer to where we need to be, not exactly where we need to be, but much closer to where the minimum wage would have been had it gone up with the cost of living, had it gone up with productivity in the United States. So we've gone from 9 to $15 over the last year. And in my case, you know, I, I don't want to take complete credit for it, but wow, we've gone from talking about 70% for tipped workers to having 10 states in January introducing legislation to eliminate the subminimum wage for tipped workers on the East Coast. That's pretty extraordinary. Congresswoman Donna Edwards just told me a few days ago she's planning to introduce legislation with us to eliminate the subminimum wage for tipped workers. We've gone from talking about 70% to what we're now calling one fair wage. One fair wage for everybody. And we're going farther than that. We're going even farther than that. Yesterday, we released a series of national reports on the industry where we did what's called match pairs audit testing. If you're not familiar with this research methodology, excuse me, it's where you send in pairs of white and people of color applicants or two people with any you know, very similar characteristics except for one that you're trying to test. In this case, we were trying to test race. We sent in hundreds of pairs on white and people of color applicants into fine dining restaurants to see who would get hired. And we did this because... Besides all of the issues I've already described of poverty in the industry, there is one more. And that is that there are some livable wage jobs in the industry. There are those fine dining server and bartending positions that the National Restaurant Association likes to hold up. Unfortunately, statistically, they are held almost exclusively by white men. And workers of color are just not able to access those livable wage jobs. So we ran a test on the issue. We worked with the foremost uh, employment testing guru in the nation, a man named Mark Bendick, who pre uh, previously worked at EPI, the Economic Policy Institute. We worked with him to do 300 tests uh, in New York, in Chicago, in Detroit, in New Orleans. We found that white workers, even when people of color had a better resume, had twice the chance of getting a fine dining service or bartending position than workers of color, and that workers of color were grilled at three times the rate of a white worker in interviewing for a fine dining service or bartending position. You know, it's funny, a couple of years ago when we put this study out in New York, I called the New York Times, and the reporter there said, I said, I have this astounding finding, white workers twice the chance of getting a job as a person of color, and the, the reporter said, well, isn't it just that they're all illegal or they can't speak English? Isn't that why no workers of color can't get a fine dining service or bartending position? So we furthered the test. Uh, we gave all the white workers 
an unintelligible European accent. We gave all the people of color a very slight non-European accent. And we found that for white workers, any kind of accent was always a bonus in getting a job. And for workers of color, any kind of accent was always a detractor. And when we replicated the study in Chicago, Detroit, and New Orleans, we found the same thing. And this is why one fair wage becomes even more important, even more important. Because beyond being a measure to reduce poverty in the country, beyond being a measure of gender equity, which it is, it is also a measure of racial equity. Because in our country, people of color have lower tipped positions than white workers. And so eliminating a system that forces these workers to rely on their tips would also greatly reduce the racial wage gap in our industry. So I just want to close by saying I came to Berkeley, as I told you, to find the connection between all of the issues that I've described and the burgeoning movement around local, sustainable, and organic. And the reason that I did that, the reason why that inquiry was so critical for me was that there were extraordinary people, some of whom are here at Berkeley, like Michael Pollan, who had written about issues of local, organic, and sustainable, and had created a consumer revolution, a consumer revolution that actually changed our industry. I remember 10 years ago restaurants saying, we'll never be able to afford locally sourced organic cuisine, now jumping over themselves to say, we provide locally sourced organic cuisine, whether or not they actually do. <laughs> right? And that change came about as a result of consumers asking, is this local, is this organic, what's in my food? And we thought, wow, if we want to change our industry to include sustainable working conditions, if we want to change the definition of sustainable food to include the 20 million people in the food system, we need consumers to actually think about these issues, inquire about these issues, speak up about these issues every time they ate out. And that is why I created the Food Labor Research Center. That is why I came to Berkeley. Beyond the restaurant worker studies that I've talked about, we've studied poultry workers working in horrible conditions akin to the jungle of 100 years ago. We've studied food retail workers here in the state of California who ironically suffer from twice the food insecurity rate of the rest of the California workforce, which means the people who sell us food in grocery stores in America can't afford to buy groceries in their own stores. We've studied all of these issues and put it out to the food movement to say, let's work together to expand this definition, and it's working. I was with Mark Bittman two days ago at an event in Silicon Valley, and I was supposed to be a respondent to him, and somebody asked Mark Bittman, you all know who Mark Bittman is, uh, if you were food czar, what would you do to change the world and the food system? And he said, I've thought about this, about being food czar. <laughs> and the first thing he said is, I would raise the minimum wage. So we've gotten extraordinary icons in the food movement to say, this has got to be the primary issue we as a food movement look at, care about, because as long as we want to eat sustainably, we want to eat in a healthy way, we want to feel good and ethical about what we are eating, we cannot ignore the 20 million people who touch that food. Thank you. So thank you.
Thank you, Saru. Uh, we have microphones, and uh, if people want to ask a question, please raise your hand, and somebody with a microphone will come. And because we're recording this, please speak into the microphone. So do we have some questions? I'm Great. just curious about the 20 million that you mentioned. How many of those people are here illegally? It's a great question, um, and actually it's a, a much smaller percentage than you'd think. Uh, in California, places like Los Angeles and New York, sure, you, we would estimate that about 40% of restaurant workers are undocumented. But nationwide, in the entire food system, it's less than 20%. So the vast majority of these workers are U.S. citizens who are still the poorest workers in America. And that is what I think most people don't realize. We're not actually just talking about a problem of immigration. We're actually talking about a labor system that feeds us and simply isn't working for anybody. Great talk, Sarah. That was inspiring. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking of three models for tipped employees, and I'm, I'm wondering if you think it makes any difference. Um, so the traditional model we have is uh, front of the house gets tips. Um, sometimes they give a portion of the tips to, to other personnel, but, but generally they keep it, and often they get a lower wage. Then there's the model that we see at Chez Panisse and some other restaurants now where a tip is added to the bill, but that tip is distributed within the house not sure how, but probably fairly evenly. And then there's the model that I saw in Europe this year where the menu prices represent tax and tip. And when you get your bill, the tip is broken out, but, but you don't, it, it's a very different, you don't see it. Um, and I'm wondering if you think that matters for any of the things that you care about. I should note that Frank Neuhauser worked in the food industry for a while as a caterer, is that right? Restaurants, catering, bartending, you know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a great question and why I went on the Today Show this year because uh, there have been several restaurants in New York and other places that, you know, put on their menus now. We've eliminated tips, do not tip, we pay our workers a living wage. And we're not always sure that that's actually true. But I will say, I think, in a utopian world, we would be much closer to Europe, right? We would have a system where a tip is very minuscule. It's, uh, it is just a small thing. Maybe a, it's actually what we call a gratuity on top of a living wage. In Norway, restaurant workers are paid $21 an hour. So if we were to approximate a living wage in the United States for restaurant workers, then yes, of course, we could think about a world in which tipping... Is, is gone, right, where these workers are professionals and treated as the professionals that they are. They work for an income as every other profession receives, right? Can I, I just for a second think about the ludicrousness of this in any other profession, right? A doctor relying on tips from patients for their income, right? Uh, a teacher relying on tips from students, apples from students, as if that would be deducted from their wage, or a CEO you know, getting deducted in his wage, since most CEOs are men, uh, because of a bonus that they receive, right? It just, it seems ludicrous to us. But this is an industry that said, we shouldn't have to pay our own workers' wages because they get some outside income. In Europe, uh, for a lot of workers, that would be considered an insult because they think of themselves as professionals. There are schools of service and cooking. It is a profession. It is a, a valued profession uh, with a career trajectory, 
Uh, and so I think in a utopian world, when we approximate $21 an hour, we can talk about eliminating tipping. Until we get there, tips are necessary to remunerate workers on top of what is not a living wage, even in the state of California, right? Even when we're talking about $9 or $10 an hour, that is nowhere near what it takes to survive in this state, right? Um, so tips are needed on top of that to bring people closer to what is perhaps a professional wage, um, but I do want to talk about something you mentioned. I'm so glad you brought it up because this is the argument of the Restaurant Association. Well, that would necessitate food prices to go way up, right? We would have to pay a lot more in food for people either to get a straight wage or a living wage. So I worked with a professor at UC Davis to test this theory. We used USDA methodology, and we applied the bill moving through Congress to every worker along the food system, from farm workers to restaurant workers, and we assumed that every employer along the chain would pass on 100% of the cost of that wage increase to the purchaser above them at the end of the chain to the average American household. And the title of the report is A Dime a Day because it would cost the average American household 10 cents more for all food bought outside the home. That's restaurants and groceries combined if employers passed on 100% of the wage increase, which, by the way, they never do. Most economists here at UC Berkeley have found that price increases are not so automatic. It is not a dollar-for-dollar dollar wage increase. Wage increases are spread among many consumers, right? Among many different shifts in a restaurant, it is not a dollar-for-dollar dollar or penny-for-penny penny increase. So you'd hardly ever see this 100% wage shift to the consumer, but even if you did, it would be 10 cents more for the average American household. Then we tested $15 across the board for every worker in the entire U.S. food system, farm workers to restaurant workers, 30 cents a day. 30 cents a day more for every one of the 20 million workers in the U.S. food system to get a $15 wage if employers passed on 100% of the food. So I think we, the thing that we, I think the lesson of the last year is that, you know, when we were talking about nine, we, we were hearing from the Restaurant Association, that's impossible, food prices will go up, we could never have nine. And we realized that was not true, and the nation has moved to 15 Right? And even with 15, people are thinking, that's extraordinary, that's ludicrous. But when you look at the data in terms of how that would actually impact the price of food, jobs, any of those things that the Restaurant Association has talked about, we find actually the opposite to be true. That there's stimulus, of course. That jobs increase. That the states are doing better with the highest wages. I'll just close with one uh, one statistic, which is that uh, ADP and paychecks, you know, the payroll processing companies recently put out a study a few months ago looking at the two cities with the highest minimum wage rates in the country, or one city and one state, San Francisco, which had the highest minimum wage until recently, and the state of Washington. They found that this city and this state had the highest job growth rates of any city and state in the United States, which is exactly the opposite of what the Restaurant Association and the Chamber have been predicting. But, but, but pardon me for asking the public policy question. Is that a selection effect or a causal effect? In other words, I'm serious. I mean, San Francisco is a rich city, so can it pay, afford to pay people a lot. Do we know this is going to work in Nashville, Tennessee, or someplace like that? And don't we have to be a little more careful about not confusing selection effects with causal effects? 
California doesn't include only San Francisco, right? California includes Fresno and Bakersfield, right? Uh, and Fresno and Bakersfield have had the same wage rate for tipped and non-tipped workers for decades. So just on the tip minimum wage alone, you can compare menu prices in Fresno and Bakersfield and Washington, D.C., where the wage is $2.77, one-third of what it is in Fresno, and find that Fresno and Bakersfield are not suffering in their restaurant industries. They're suffering in many other ways. But their restaurant industries are growing pretty dramatically in Fresno and Bakersfield. And that menu prices are actually cheaper in Fresno and Bakersfield than they are in Washington, D.C. So I think it isn't, you know, yes, there are cities like San Francisco and the state of Washington that do really well. And it could be causal or it could be selective. But then when you look at cities that are not doing as well, where the wage is still much higher than other states, they're still doing better in job growth. In menu prices, they're comparable uh, in the restaurant industry. So, yep. Let's get a microphone. Yep, Doug. Hi, I, I have the feeling that this is an audience that is uh, very receptive to your message. I'm curious, what's the political process that you envision that will get this to change? I mean, the president has proposed increased wage. You've got the Democratic leader of the House. But you also have uh, a, a Congress that refuses to budge. So how do you see this unfolding? Yeah, it's a great question. So, uh, you know, first of all, uh, Congress is in gridlock <laughs> at the moment. That is absolutely certain. And we like to look at the example of marriage equality in the United States, right, which passed... Uh, in many conservative states, um, but really was all about building state-by-state momentum towards what we now consider a national victory on the issue of of marriage equality, right? Um, So I think it is important for a minute to suspend conversation about the federal and look at extraordinary momentum at the state level, right? You know, 40 cities and states that are raising or have raised their minimum wage over the last year. Ten states that are moving to eliminate the lower wage for tipped workers in January. All of this momentum is certainly reverberating in Congress. We know it is. We know the White House was talking about 70%, fairly opposed to elimination of the lower minimum wage, then gave me an award for pushing, uh, you know, uh, elimination of the tip minimum wage. In Congress, I was with Congresswoman Donna Edwards a few days ago, and she said to me, Saru, you don't, you don't understand you know, now every Congress member is talking about tipped workers as if it was their own idea. <laughs> uh, and these are the same Congress members who a few months ago uh, refused to listen because of the extraordinary advocacy of the National Restaurant Association. So we are seeing changes even in a Republican House, even in a gridlock Senate, because of momentum at the state and local level. And I just want to remind us that the last time the minimum wage went up, we had a Republican House, Right. It is possible, it is possible because this is an issue that is popular across Republican and Democratic constituents alike. Uh, And I'll just put out one last thing. We just raised the minimum wage in Michigan, which has a completely Republican-controlled legislature, governor. And that happened because we collected 350,000 signatures for a ballot measure that would have been on November ballot in two weeks. And the Republican legislature, in terror that that would drive Democratic voters to the polls, raise the minimum wage on their own. And we became the historically first organization in America to get a Republican-controlled state 
to raise the minimum wage for both tipped and non-tipped workers. So it is possible. It will take momentum at the local and state level to move Congress. I wonder if you could uh, talk about the issue of wage theft. Uh, yesterday in in Marin County, where I live, there was a front page story in the Marin paper about wage theft in a restaurant. Uh, so, you know, most people nowadays put the tips on their credit card, just assuming uh, that the waitress is going to get it. But in fact, that doesn't happen. The uh, the restaurant owners think that the tips belong to them uh, and I'm, uh, I'm just wondering what what the statistics are and what you know about this yeah. uh, you know, the prevalence of wage theft in this very low paid uh, industry which doesn't pay anything in the first place <laughs> and as and to the extent that it applies to women whether they can get a if, if, if waitressing was a male dominated profession whether they could get away with this or not yeah so it's funny, every time I debate the National Restaurant Association, and it happens quite often on MSNBC or even Fox or, you know, wherever I debate them, even in here, I debated them in, in the Berkeley City Hall in front of the Labor Commission here at the Berkeley City Hall. Every time I debate them, they say, she's wrong, she's lying, nobody actually earns $2.13 an hour because the law says that tips must make up the difference between two thirteen and the regular minimum wage, and employers are compelled by law to ensure that tips make up that difference. So we had a hearing on this in the Senate, and the U.S. Department of Labor was asked to come and testify, and we asked the U.S. Department of Labor, what do you know about how often that actually happens? How often employers actually ensure that tips make up the difference? And the U.S. Department of Labor was forced to say there's an 83% violation rate with regard to employers actually ensuring that tips make up the difference between the regular minimum wage and the tip minimum wage. The U.S. Department of Labor has said that the restaurant industry is the number one violator, the number one source of what's called wage and tip theft, actually taking a portion of the workers' tips or not giving them all of their wages, so much so that the Department of Labor calls it a culture in the restaurant. It's the culture. It's the norm of work. It's the norm of practice. Our research has shown 60% of workers don't receive overtime in this industry. In the 6,000 workers we've surveyed nationwide, I have encountered one worker whose employer went back every hour and ensured that tips made up the difference between the lower minimum wage and the tip minimum wage. I feel for employers. It's an extraordinary burden to have to ensure that tips make up the difference, right? There's extraordinary liability the federal government has said that actually the law is if you don't make up the difference, you're liable for every single hour that the worker has worked, that difference of $5. You have to go back and pay $5 for every hour the worker has worked. And in fact, it was so funny, I was debating the California Restaurant Association here in the Berkeley City Hall, and the city, city council member said, asked, uh, asked the California Restaurant Association, because I said, you know, in other states, this is a tremendous burden for employers having to pay the difference. California Restaurant Association was arguing for a lower tip minimum wage here in the city of Berkeley, 
when the minimum wage was being proposed to be increased here in the city of Berkeley. So this is why Californians need to care about this, because although our wage is the same, the Restaurant Association has been fighting for years to change that. So here in the city of Berkeley, they showed up. They said, if you're going to raise the minimum wage, leave the tipped workers out, as they do in all the other states. And I said, but you don't understand. That would make restaurants in Berkeley the only restaurants in the state of California who have this tremendous burden of calculating the difference. And the commissioner said to the California Restaurant Association, well, what do you think about that? And the guy from the CRA said, well, that would be bad. Every restaurant in the city of Berkeley would have to hire a full-time HR person to calculate the difference, which totally killed his argument. So it's, it is a tremendous burden, but the, but the extent of wage theft, what Steve is talking about in terms of restaurants actually cutting 3% for, for credit card processing fees is so rampant that we actually got uh, city council members in Philadelphia to pass a law making it illegal. Now, it is actually illegal in the state of California to, for restaurants to deduct credit card processing fees from workers' tips, but it is such a rampant practice that no worker knows that that law is on the books. Very few restaurants even know that that's the law. Uh, and restaurants assume this is not a cost that we should have to absorb. Workers should have to absorb it, which is why we encourage people to leave your tips in cash. I'm, I'm going to take the liberty of asking one more question. So you paint the picture of a very venal industry, to say the least. Um, why are they so venal? I mean, it seems to me that is it really that much profit they make out of this? Are there no incentives for them to act in a better fashion? Um, I think it's a little mystifying because if, in fact, it's not that much, why don't they do it? And I, and I don't think the response can be, well, they're just venal. There must be something more to it than that. Speaking as a public policy person, we usually try to figure out what's the incentive structure that leads to these kinds of behaviors. Yeah. Um, and, and I am painting the picture of an industry that is led by the National Restaurant Association that sets the standards for 90% of the industry. But I mentioned at the beginning of my talk that we have formed an alternative National Restaurant Association comprised of outstanding employers across the country who actually pay livable wages and better working conditions. And we worked with the Cornell, with Cornell University, actually a series of uh, industrial labor relations specialists to do two sets of studies. Um, one qualitative where we, we interviewed and did focus groups with these 100 employers across the country to understand what benefits they derive from providing higher wages and benefits and found, of course, lower turnover, higher productivity, higher profitability. Uh, then we did a quantitative study with 1,100 restaurant employers across the country and found that you can actually cut your turnover in half. In an industry that experiences the highest turnover rates of any industry in the United States, you can cut your turnover in half with savings in the hundreds of thousands of dollars per year if you provide higher wages and better benefits. So then you have to ask yourself, why wouldn't everybody do it? Cost-saving measures, better bottom line, why wouldn't everybody do it? Uh, and, and it's part of, um, you know, some of you may know Zainab Tom from MIT just put out a book this year that got a lot of attention called The Good Job Strategy about companies like Costco uh, that provide a living wage. And even in our industry, uh, in and out Burger actually provides uh, a livable wage, not even, they provide $11, $12, and $13 an hour starting wage, benefits and paid sick days. They're the only fast food company that currently provides that high standard. Um, 
and so you have to ask yourself, why doesn't everybody follow in and outs you know, or Costco, which is, has become the number one food retailer in the state of California? Why wouldn't everybody follow that strategy? Uh, part of it is that uh, a lot of these companies are public and somehow believe that they can produce better returns to shareholders and investors um, with lower and lower labor costs. There's a race to the bottom. I've, just, I've been in talks with a very large fast food company. Actually, just yesterday I was talking to the CEO about the possibility of raising their wage. And I'm kind of in this negotiation trying to get the White House to call them to actually change their wage, which would be tremendous. Um, and they're thinking about doing it, but one of the major things they're thinking about is, uh, you know, well, nobody else does it. You know, we would be sticking our necks out. We would be different, um, right, which is why we think policy is so important to not have these few high-road employers doing something different. But in the case of that company, they were telling me, I can't name the company just yet, but in the case of that company, they were saying, you know, one of the reasons why people love our shares, people think we have, you know, you know we'd love to buy our shares is because, we claim a labor percentage that's very low. Uh, at, at 21% was their labor cost of total cost. Um, they say, you know, Panera is at 28, 29, 30. We're at 21, so everybody loves our shares. So there's kind of a race to the bottom, not looking at the ultimate bottom line, simply looking at labor cost as a percentage of overall cost, which really isn't the right measure, right? The right measure should be what kind of value are you producing for shareholders, ultimately. And what's not seen is the tremendous costs in terms of turnover, in terms of lesser productivity, even in terms of liability. You know, uh, we have, we've been doing a lot of work, shareholder work, on Darden, the world's largest uh, full-service restaurant company. They own Olive Garden. Red, they've owned Red Lobster until recently. This, is an, the, this company epitomizes the answer to your question because they've been taken over by hedge funds uh, and there's tremendous pressure to produce very high share values, right? Tremendous pressure. And their entire proposal in taking over the company was we're going to slash labor costs, we're going to move all non-tipped workers to a tipped wage so that we don't have to pay as much, right? And uh, what that company itself has found in terms of liability was that last year, Michelle Obama gave them an award for supposedly providing healthy food for kids at the Olive Garden, uh, because they provided carrot sticks along with the breadsticks. Um, and at the same moment that she gave them that award, a server in Fayetteville, North Carolina, was forced to work with hepatitis A because the company not only didn't provide paid sick days but told her she'd be fired if she didn't come to work, even though she had hepatitis A. And because she was a tipped worker in a state that pays $2.13 an hour, she had to go to work to get the tips. There's no way to get your income as a tipped worker unless you go to work and interact with customers. 3,000 people had to get tested for hepatitis A by the county health department, filed a class action lawsuit against Darden, won, and two other class actions erupted that year over norovirus outbreaks in Olive Gardens in Indiana and Illinois. So you have to ask yourself, sure, you might be reducing labor costs every which way, you might be driving up share value, or you think you are, and at the same time you're paying hundreds of millions of dollars in lawsuits Right, as a result of liability you're producing for these tremendous. So, why do they do it? They do it partly because they're public companies that are on the wrong path. My real opinion as to why they do it is because this is the standard mythology about what good business looks like. 
uh, and everybody just looks to the right and the left in setting those standards rather than trying to think outside the box and doing things differently, which is what Costco has done and in and out and have found tremendous rewards as a result. So, Saru, thank you. We, we love your passion, your commitment, the way you bring data to bear on these issues, uh, the innovative data exercises you've gone through, in fact, to get information on how to think about this problem. Uh, that's very much what attracted me to having you come on to the uh, faculty, because I think it's important for our students to learn how you take data and information and use it in a way to advance uh, a, a concern like the one that you have and the interests you have. I think... That's a real lesson for them because sometimes public policy tends to be a little barren. We do good analysis, but it doesn't get anywhere. Uh, this is a way to teach our students how to think about going the next step to actually use the data to, to get a movement underway. And uh, as you can see, Saru Jeromaman, whose name I will someday learn how to say, Saru has managed to do this in a way that's quite extraordinary. So thank you very much. <laughs>